This morning, we enter into the second week of the Advent season, and last week, we lit the first of four candles leading up to the birth of the King of glory, the King of the world, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And last week, um, we lit the prophecy candle and looked at a passage in Isaiah and recited it together um, that brings about this sense of hope that Christ has for us. Um, And today, as we move along in the Advent season, um, we continue our journey out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Um, That really is the movement of Advent. It is a movement from the darkness of our world and into the light that is Christ Jesus. And so today we move into the second week of the Advent season. Um, And today we look at what is known as the Bethlehem candle. And for us, it is the candle of love, um, that Christ is our love. And we will dive into that more um, this morning. But before we light the two candles, um, the hope candle and the love candle, um, I want us to um, take part in this responsive reading this morning to set our hearts in a posture of worship in the midst of this chaotic, dark, busy world that we live in. And may this anchor us today. Um, so if we can, let's turn our attention to the screen. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. All of us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We will light this morning the hope candle that we lit last week. And we will also light this morning the love candle in response to Christ's love for us. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Have your way. Meet with us here. May we slow down and rest and stop and sit in a deep longing for you. Many of us are experiencing the darkness right now. We've come in this morning in the midst of dark chaos in our life. We are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But I praise you today, King Jesus, that you showed up, that you entered into the story. The author became the main character. For each person in this room today, they didn't show up here on accident. I pray that in the midst of the brokenness in our world that we are able to see the light. Come now, Holy Spirit. Meet with us this morning. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. We have officially entered into the Hallmark Christmas movie season. Uh, anybody excited about Hallmark Christmas movies? Yes. I personally love Hallmark, okay? 
I'm a huge fan, big fan of Hallmark Christmas movies. I think they're fantastic, um, though the plot is very simplistic. Uh, it, there's, it's, it's a lot of joy, you know what I mean? Like the farm's always going to be saved, you know? Um, the, 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 the guy and the girl are always going to get together, you know? It's always snowing and beautiful snow. It's not like ugly snow. It's like beautiful small town Vermont snow, you know? And I, I love it. So we officially kind of entered into that. But uh, that's just a side note. I just love Hallmark Christmas movies. So uh, we have, as I mentioned, entered into Advent. And last week we talked about Advent means uh, simply to come or the coming or arrival of a notable person or event. That is what Advent means. Advent is the beginning of the Christmas, um, kind of the beginning of the Christmas season, but also the beginning of the Christian calendar. And so for us as followers of the way of Jesus, um, this is in fact the Christian New Year. Um, This is kind of the Christian New Year for us. Our year begins now as we press into Advent. It is a season of waiting or longing for the birth of our Savior as we hold to the promises of the prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, all through um, the book of Isaiah and other prophets as well. We hold to those promises in this season. I like that in the um, Eastern Orthodox tradition, they refer to this as bright sadness, uh, meaning that there's a darkness in our world, and yet in the midst of the darkness, there is a uh, sense that there is a light, a bright light at the end of the tunnel. And so we kind of cling into that and, and press into that reality during this season. It is a slow-moving journey uh, out of the darkness and into the light of Christ. Because a lot of us in Christmas season, especially in Advent, we jump so quickly to December 25th. You know, we just jump quickly into that manger moment. And for us as followers of the way of Jesus, this is actually a much slower, intentional, waiting period, longing moment for us as followers of the way. Walking into the statement Jesus makes in John chapter 8 where he says, I am the light of the world. How beautiful is that? And the candle represents us walking into the light of the world. And we will eventually make our way to lighting a center candle on our last gathering, representing Christ himself, the light of the world. And where Jesus has already, as we now operate, those of us who are here today, we operate in a space and time where Jesus has already come. The kingdom has already been inaugurated by King Jesus. We now also long for the second advent or the second, ad, uh, the second coming of Christ Jesus. That is the season that we are in as followers of the way of Jesus. We anticipate his second coming. Any moment now, Jesus could show up. At any moment right now. Because I'm pretty sure those shepherds were freaked out when an angel shows up to them. It says, glory to God in the highest. And like, whoa, I'm just trying to watch after my sheep. At any moment. Isaiah's prophecies come 700 or so years before the birth of Christ. At any moment, Christ could return. We have work to do in this world, but at any moment, it could be now. It could be tomorrow. It could be years from now. We don't know. That's why we have to be ready. But because we live in that season, we long for the second coming of Christ. The calendar begins with Advent and ends with Advent until time is no longer. 
understand the Christian calendar begins with Advent and it ends with Advent until time is no longer. Where we are no longer bound to a calendar because we experience what the writer John says regarding the new Jerusalem in Revelation where there will be no more, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We anticipate that time where there is no calendar. But we are walking into the light of Christ, but also clinging to his second coming. I'm going to do something today I've never done before, ever. I am preaching from John 3.16. Okay? I'm preaching from John 3.16. So go ahead and hop into the scriptures. Go to John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 16. Dr. Scott McKnight calls this the heart of the gospel of John. The heart of God for humans and the for humans and the hearty one. This is the heart of the gospel of John, the heart of God for humans and the heart of Jesus for everyone. A lot of us know this verse, specifically verse 16, by heart. I'm going to read it for us today, starting verse 16. We're going to go through verse 19. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Very similar in John chapter 1. Um, the, light, the light entered into the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or has not overcome it or will not overcome it. Contextually, Jesus is having a conversation with a high-up religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. It's happening at nighttime. He shows up to, wanting to have this moment with Jesus, asking him all these questions, questions. And Jesus says in the beginning of this conversation that he must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, I'm already like 25, 30 years old. So they're saying, I don't know how this is going to happen. You know, I don't know how I can be born again. He said, like, you have to be born of spirit. A new spirit must come inside of you. And it leads up to this moment in John 3, where the writer John gives us this kind of expose of the heart of God, the heart of Jesus in John 3. 16. A lot of us spend time just on verse 16, and we don't read 17, 18, and 19 as well for context purposes, all right? So how many of you in here remember your very first boyfriend or girlfriend? Anybody? Oh, well, maybe some of you are still waiting, okay? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you're like, I haven't got one yet, you know? Like, okay. Um, but when I was 14 years old, I remember eighth grade, and I had my very first girlfriend, and uh, her, name is, her name was Chelsea, all right? And uh, I remember Chelsea, and we had a long-lasting relationship of about four months. Fantastic, okay, four months long in eighth grade. That was a long time. You guys remember those relationships back in middle school? Forever, all right? You take their book bag to class for them, meet them at their locker room. Like, not, not the locker room, the locker. That's awkward, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe after PE class or something, you're at the locker room door. Um, but anyway, you had this girlfriend... I went to public school, so sorry, okay? And uh, so you had this girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever. Do you remember the first time you said, I love you? 
You remember that? Again, some of you are still waiting for that moment, okay? Um, I remember that moment for myself. I told this, this Chelsea girl I loved her. I'm like 14 years old. This is crazy. What is going on? But it's interesting, though, because Chelsea actually has become of great value for Jordan and I now because Chelsea is the answer to one of our online banking security questions. So she's become of great value to us. It's wonderful. You know, the security questions, it's like, what's the name of your first boyfriend or girlfriend? I'm like, I got that one, you know? So now Jordan is very aware of Chelsea. We pray for her this morning because she's preaching and teaching at her home church. So um, that's why I could talk about my first girlfriend because my wife's preaching at another church today. Um, so she'll be here later, but it's all good. She's going to be bombarded with people at the back, you know? Like, did you hear you know, your husband? Da, 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 da. Um, but anyway, I noticed in all of that, how quickly in our culture we are to use the phrase, I love. I love. I love my wife. I love the beach. I love football. I love my friend. I love the movies. I love, I love, I love, I love. Love is all around us. And as a word has become a common, if not the most common, cliche in our culture. It has become the most common cliche in our culture. McKnight also says that when a word means everything, it ends up meaning nothing at all. When a word means everything, it ends up meaning nothing at all. And unfortunately, we find ourselves, I think, in that predicament in our current cultural moment in society. I feel like due to the commonplace use of the word love in the secular worldview, that it has leaked into the bride of Christ and created an anemic, feeble understanding and theology of what love is. It's created this anemic and feeble theology and view of what love is, which strips love every bit of its radical, subversive potency. It strips every bit of its radical, subversive potency. In 2016, a Time Magazine article came out entitled, We Are Defining Love the Wrong Way. The first sentence reads, It's time to change the meaning of the word love. Time Magazine, 2016. Although I agree with the title of the article, I would slightly change the first sentence. We don't need to change the meaning of the word love, but recapture. It's already been defined love is. We don't need to change the meaning of the word love. It's already been defined for us, but we need to recapture what true love is. Love as defined by society is an an intense feeling of deep affection. In other words, love is what one feels. But I think there is much more to that. And I think the scriptures would say there is much, much, much more depth to that. In the ancient Greek world, there were four primary types of love. And we've all lumped it into one word in our culture, but in the ancient Greek world, there is Four primary types of love. And we'll have those on the screen for you to take a look at. The first and most common in our culture is eros. Eros love. This is a romantic, um, sexually driven, self-oriented mode of love. Anytime you search or Google the word love, what primary comes up, 
what primarily comes up is associated with eros love. That's the primary type of love that you see when you Google just love in our culture. And it's rooted primarily in a sexual desire, uh, in the libido, okay, that we, have, we are sexual people. We have a sex drive. That is where eros love is rooted. It is rooted in romance and out of more of a self-centered desire. By the way, this word is not used in the New Testament at all. Where you see this word played out throughout the scriptures in light of eros and what it is, is in the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. That is this beautifully written account of a husband and wife and what intimacy looks like in a romantic sexual sense. God-ordained sense. The second is the word storge. And storge is a kind of family-oriented love. And it is primarily out of familiarity or dependence. Familiarity or dependence. Right? You love your mom. Well, you choose to love her sometimes, but sometimes you're like, that's just my mom. That's what I do. I love my mom, you know, um, because I need her. I'm dependent upon her. Um, and so this is where we get the idea of storge, this family-centered love. And then we move into philea, philea, which is where we also get um, the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is a love that is friend-oriented. It is out of a common interest. Okay, it's out of a share. Kick it with your friend because you loving someone else who has very similar interests to you. Like you like to kick it with your friend because you're cool. Like there is no ill will at all. Like you love your friend. All right, it's brotherly or sisterly love. It's Philadelphia. Okay, this is this is love from a friend sort of way. And then we move into the word we see most often translated in the New Testament. And that is the word agape, agape. And it is a sacrificial love that is out of God. It is not out of the self at all. This truly is the base of all love. It is a sacrificial, out of God kind of love. But isn't it interesting that I think in our culture, we've almost flipped it upside down and made eros the basic form, most common form, the starting point of what love is. Ooh, I fell in love with such and such. Again, back to the Hallmark movies. Love is in the air. Really, romance is in the air. Okay, eros is in the air. We have made that kind of our base of what love is in our Society And unfortunately, we begin to use common, very um, shallow phrases like love is love. And clearly that is not the case because there are different types of love. I don't love playing basketball like I love my wife. So therefore, love may take a different shape. Love isn't always love. We see here in the ancient Greek world, there are four different types of love. And agape is primarily associated with Christian thought and practice. Agape is a, almost like this, this Christianized Greek word in the Greco-Christian world. It is associated with Christian thought and practice and the love that God has for us, we have for him and we have for others, for humanity. It gives 
sacrificially. Listen to this. It gives sacrificially, expecting nothing in return, not based on shared interest, shared political party, shared views, shared economic status, shared race, or shared ideology, but shared creator and shared humanity. That is where agape comes from and how it is displayed in our society and throughout the New Testament scriptures. In the New Testament, the word love is used over 230 times. The majority of the time the word used is primarily noun form or agapao in the verb tense. That's primarily how we see love translated throughout the New Testament. And in John 3.16, we see the quintessential agape verse. This is agape. Not eros, not storge, not philea, agape love. I was driving downtown this past week, and I don't know if you've ever driven on Gate City and the Eugene intersection, but Ford's makerspace is in downtown. And it's this cool makerspace you can go and create things. And they always have a big sign out front that usually has some sort of quote on the sign. They have all different types of quotes that are on that sign in downtown. And I saw the quote this past week, love is as love does. Love is as love does. And that is from uh, a psychiatrist, a Christian psychologist um, by the name of M. Scott Peck from his book, The Road Less Traveled. Came out in the 1970s, historic book on love and human relationships. Fantastic. He also has another quote, or a couple of quotes that I've kind of brought together for us today that I think is powerful. He says this in the book. He says, the feeling of love is not love. It's a feeling. Genuine love is volitional, which means a choice, rather than emotional. Love is the will. I love this. Love is the will. See what I did there? I like this, okay? Love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Fantastic description of love. And I think agape love, love that is volitional, love that is chosen. Love is as love does. A lot of the folks in our community have become big Bob Goff fans, I will say. I think every young lady has read Love Does in this community. And that's the premise of that idea is that love does. Love acts. Love moves. Love chooses. Love always precedes action. Agape love always precedes action. And I almost feel like in our society, we almost need to separate the word love and agape. Because it's become so intertwined, we've missed out on what it truly means to Agape, or to agapao. We've missed out on that. Loving and God does. Love always acts. God loving and God giving are uniquely bound together. God loving and God giving, as we see in John 3, are uniquely bound together. Not only does it say God loved, But it says, God so loved. It goes way beyond your knowledge. 
Paul says his love surpasses knowledge. And, and Paul's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, theologian in the history of the church. He's like, I'm a brilliant dude, but it goes way past my head. Way past the width of the ocean. There is no height nor, nor depth that can separate you and I from the love of God. That is how vast God's agape is for you and I. Love acts. Love moves. God loving and God giving are uniquely bound together. And God so loved the world. The word world there is where we get the word cosmos. It comes from the Greek word cosmos. He so loved the cosmos, the whole entire world, all of his creation that he gave himself, he gave his son. It is a love that has been in existence since the beginning of creation. God's love has been in existence since the beginning of creation. You and I are the driving motivation of God's love. Did you know that? You and I are God's driving motivation to love us. Because love can't exist without something to love. Because it gives of itself. Agape can't exist without it giving itself and being received by someone else. We were created out of love. Love is freely given and freely received. Agape is a giving of yourself that is derived in God giving himself to us. Think about that. We were created out of agape, out of love. However, social construct us love. He didn't give us a social construct. He didn't give us a new behavior. He didn't give us a new psychology. He gave us a person. He gave us himself. God, the creator, the author of the narrative of the world. Did you know that you and I are in a story? We are in what's called the God story. We are characters right now in this moment in the God story, and the Lord is at work, working to bring his story to ultimate completion. And so the climactic moment was when God became flesh, he became Emmanuel, God with us. And in that is where we get the Advent celebration, where he entered into this lowly manger in this stable scene, this countercultural way of entering into humanity as the king of the world might have you. Love becomes a person, not a social construct, not a new psychology, not an idea. It is a person is God himself at the core of love, that the core of Advent is not a theory or idea, it is a person. That is key for us having a theology of love. The core of love is a person. We look at 1 John chapter 4. So further on in the New Testament, John writes this, starting in verse 7. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another. This word here is agape. Or agapao, the verb. For love comes, what? From God. 
Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one. Listen, this is, this is key. Theology of love right here. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Sounds very similar to his gospel account. Very similar to verse 16 in John chapter 3. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Meaning he made a payment for you and I, redemptive payment and atonement. Claiming victory over sin and death. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Sounds very similar to the great commandment, does it not? No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And again in verse 16, again he says, God is love. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, in other words, if we show agape to one another, others will see God's love and others will see God himself. And his love is made complete or made whole or perfected in us. Love comes from God. Understand that. Love comes from, I think sometimes in our our culture, we think love preexisted before God. God is not bound to time. God is is, is totally independent. Okay? God has always existed. He's not a created being. Love didn't exist before God because God himself is love. Love is not a construct that's always a construct that's always existed in the cosmos. That is not true. That is only God himself that has existed for all of eternal life. Love comes from God. God doesn't come from love. Key understanding of what love is. God does not come from love. Jesus is the fullness, the embodiment. He is love personified. He himself is love. Because love is a person, not some social construct. And the way we love one another is to live like Jesus. Which for a lot of us, we love and ooh and I like, man, that's incredible. But the amount of sacrifice required oftentimes keeps us on the sideline becoming fanboys and fangirls of this creator and king of the world, rooting him on, but he says, come play on the field, and we say, I don't want to. Because agape costs everything. Agape isn't thrown around on billboards and on shirts. Agape isn't something you, ref- you call your favorite restaurant. It is sacrificial, and it gives itself away. Did you not hear the words of reckless love? Oh, the overwhelming, reckless love of God gives himself away. That is agape. Jesus is the fullness, the embodiment of agape. God, Emmanuel. Jesus is love. Listen, a love not rooted in Jesus is not agape love. 
A love not rooted in Jesus is not agape love. Write that down. Put it in your notes, your phone, your moleskin, your field notes journal, whatever. A love not rooted in Jesus is not agape love. At best in our society without Jesus, we might get to filet of love, which ends up being you just loving someone else because they're like you. So what we've done in our culture is we've made, again, I've said this before in previous teachings, we've made tolerance the ceiling. No, no, love has no ceiling. Love gives itself away. You give to someone not based on common interests, common background, common political view, common worldview. You give because we share the same creator and the same humanity. That is why we give. That is the rich depth of agape love. And we as the church have to be ones to recapture what love is and means in our society. If not, the culture will actually begin to see the church assimilated into the culture. Jesus, in John 15, says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. The call in John 15, as we've mentioned before, is to abide in Christ, to dwell in Christ, to live in Christ. And the word remain and abide derive from the same Greek word, the same exact word. In other words, the call to abide in Christ is a call to abide in love, to abide in love. It is a possessive pronoun, mine, my love. Mine is a possessive pronoun, mine. This is my love. It's not the world's love. It's not the culture's love. It's not your mom or your daddy's love. It's my love. It is agape love. It is rooted in me. I am agape. I honestly, I'm going to be transparent. I have, I have recently seen phrases in the culture that say, um, Love reigns. While that is so close, it is yet so far. Because love has become a social construct. No, no, Jesus reigns. Jesus is king of the world. When you are baptized and you are saved, you proclaim with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, not love is Lord. Because love is not God. God is love. So let's just jump to God. Let's just jump to Jesus. Jesus reigns and lives and sits at the right hand of the Father, advocating and pouring his love out for you and I. In John 3, we see the picture of God pouring his love out on us through himself in the flesh, giving all of himself. It's a picture that mirrors the Hebrew story of Abraham and Isaac, except in this story, the Father goes through with it. He gives himself away. He is incarnate. It is God in the flesh. And when we believe or trust in Christ as Lord, not that Christ is Lord, keep that in mind. Because you can cognitively come to a realization, Jesus is Lord, but until you actually sit in the chair of Jesus, you will never actually trust in him. So when we believe in him, or trust in Christ as Lord, we experience that eternal life now. Right now, in the present moment, we experience eternal life. In the ancient world, there was a distinct separation between the eternal life to come and the present life 
a distinct separation. But in this passage of Scripture, we see John 3.16, that when we put our trust, when we believe in him, which is an action, we believe in him, we will experience eternal life. Meaning that Jesus, God himself, who is beyond time, he he enters into the present moment. Essentially, the future and the past kind of collide in the moment. Eternity collides in the present moment. And we put our trust into Jesus. We experience eternal life beginning that very moment. Eternal life doesn't begin the moment that your physical body dies. Your soul never dies. It begins the moment you believe in Christ Jesus. And for those of us who don't put our faith in Christ, when we don't trust in him, it says that we are condemned already, meaning that we have chose condemnation ourselves. When given the opportunity to trust in Christ, we've chosen condemnation. We've chosen the darkness. We've chosen to stiff-arm Christ Jesus. We choose our own destiny. We either trust in Christ or trust in self. And try trusting in yourself for a little while and see how that goes. It doesn't lead to eternal life. It leads to eternal death and darkness. In Advent, the eternal life comes into the present life. And when we believe in Christ Jesus, we experience eternal life now. Not then, now. That is the ultimate experience of human flourishing. Four key words attributed to Jesus and kind of appropriated to us as we read this passage in John chapter 3. These three words stood out to me greatly as I read the passage. Love, obviously. Life, light, and truth. These four characteristic words are connected to agape. They're connected to agape. We could go deeper into this, but we don't have the time today to do so. But keep that in mind. As you're zooming out of the text and trying to look at it yourself in your own free time, notice these words. Notice these attributes. Love, life, light, and truth. However, you or I, as I mentioned a second ago or or spoke to it, we can misappropriate agape. We can misappropriate our love. It can be pushed into a different direction. Because verse 19 says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Again, there's the word light. But people loved, that word is agape. People loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They have sacrificially given of themselves a love that's been given by God himself. They've given it to the darkness. They've given it to the darkness. Misappropriated agape leads to a life in darkness and is a life characterized by living for the self. Which, be, which brings about condemnation. It is choosing of condemnation. I love this quote um, by a great theologian from the mid-20th century named Mildred Bangs Wincoop. And she says, the very nature of sin is love's perversion. Bang, that's a quote, man. Come on. It's incredible. She's wrote a great book called A Theology of Love. Recommend you getting it. Where she says, This in the book. The very nature of sin is love's perversion. Fascinating. We can misappropriate agape. But I promise you this. Even in the midst of your darkness today, if you have chosen to appropriate your love to darkness, God has poured his love out for you and for myself. 
He desires intimacy with you. And he just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. But he has a deep desire to know you and you to know him so that you can experience true human flourishing and can partner with him in the restoration of all things at the kind of final ending, a moment in the God story. Today, we lit the Bethlehem candle. It symbolizes God's love. And in the story, you see shepherds invited by angels to meet Emmanuel in a manger. And that imagery is the imagery of agape. Not only has agape been poured out on us, but the call to live a life of messy agape is upon us as well because the shepherds encountered a messy scene. It was countercultural, subversive, messy, not in the way of culture. Subversive, counter to the way of the culture. We've been called as followers of the way of Jesus as we have experienced his love to pour out that same love onto others. It is a love that gives. If you aren't giving of yourself, then I would argue you've never experienced agape. Because it is a love that moves, not based in feeling or emotion, but in choice. Because you know there's some people in your life that are hard to love. Maybe that's just me. In our culture, in our society, There is a rise of fragmentation and tribalism where we are going at one another based on literally what we are against from the other group of people or what we hate or dislike. But Jesus entering into the story shows us what it looks like to love those who probably won't love you back. You know, a lot of us in our culture, because we do throw around the word love, we tend to point out that Jesus uh, was one who loved all. And that is 100% correct. But look where it got him. (laughs) Look where it got him. You saying, hey, you do you, that's me loving you, you just do you. That ain't going to get you on a cross. Because I learned this, that Jesus poured his love out on others. And in that sacrificial loving of the world, not everyone received that love. And it put him on a cross. Agape got Jesus crucified. And agape will get you into a position where stones will be thrown at you. Especially in this cultural climate. You will find yourself in some arenas where people are going to be like, I just, I don't, I disagree. And I'm honestly, I'm just, I'm mad at you, man. Like, I don't, I don't agree with that. And you still, you pour your love out to those people. Same thing on the other side. You're going to find yourself stones thrown at you. People coming at you. I don't know about that. That's just wrong. I'm going to love you anyways. And hopefully in the midst of it all, people in the darkness will see the great hope of light and will repent from their ways and be drawn and wooed by Jesus to experience that eternal light. But I promise you that eternal life. But I promise you there will be stones thrown at you. The Roman government threw stones at Jesus. The the religious elite threw stones at Jesus. And they both, uh, at the end of the day, put Jesus up on a cross. You will find yourself, if you're following in the way of Jesus, having stones thrown at you from different spectrums of life because of agape. Sacrificial giving of yourself.
in this Advent season, may we receive the truth, light, and life of agape. And let it beam through us. As C.S. Lewis says, if you love deeply, you're going to get hurt badly. But it's still worth it. Corey, I'm going to get you to come up. We're going to close this morning. I hope that today, in the short time we have together, you were able to get a glimpse of what agape is. Almost to a point where you're like, I need to change my vocabulary. (laughs) I can't just throw around love anymore. Or I need to start using agape. I have to recapture what this God-giving, sacrificial love really is. Or I need to find myself in scenarios where there are other people who are not like me who don't think the way I think, who don't look the way I look, and that honestly might be hard for me to love. But I'll be honest, I'm hard to love sometimes, and Jesus has poured his love out on me. Let's close our eyes this morning.